You're listening to The Homeschool Dropout. I'm your host, Mike Roberts. Let's talk about bridging the gap between homeschool and the professional world. Welcome back, listeners, to another week of The Homeschool Dropout. Mike Roberts here. Today, we have our very first ballerina joining us. I'm really excited. Cynthia, so glad you were able to make some time to join us on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. It's my favorite subject. Really happy to be here. <laughs> love talking about it. <laughs> well, you know, in the short conversations we've had, I just love how frank you are with homeschooling and education in general, and then your ballet experiences. It's just so refreshing for me. And so I'm excited for listeners to hear your take on everything. So let me intro you a little bit. I won't go into too much depth because honestly, your work with ballet is so extensive and I don't want to get anything wrong, but you are a multimedia ballet artist and educator. You're based out of New York. You do work in Paris and Texas, but not mm-hmm. Paris, Texas, <laughs> right. as we talked right. about. You're the founder and director of the Ballet Institute in New York. You did that for 10 years. You've studied all over the world, St. Petersburg, Boston Ballet, Pennsylvania Ballet. Your life has contributed to and been contributed by ballet. So it's a big part of who you are. And now you teach and you're developing curriculums for schools and Montessori groups. And I think we'll get into that towards the end of the episode. You've done so much work in ballet. It's really exciting. Thank you. Yeah, it's my great and deep love. Like, I wouldn't even know how to separate it from my identity at this point. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but (laughs) it's been a fun journey. Well, why don't you share with listeners your alternative, unique education experience, your life of dance and ballet influenced the way you pursued your education. And I I thought that was really fascinating. Sure. Yeah, it definitely, my dance life was always the guiding star. So whatever decisions needed to be made around that as a priority and a direction, that's why they were Mm. made. But I went to regular school through ninth grade and by the time you're 14, 15 years old, really it's earlier, but definitely by that time, you're making decisions about really your long-term mm-hmm. future. In all things in life, we can have anything, but we can't have everything at the same time. So you have to set certain things aside. So I went to performing arts high school, public performing arts high school in Philly, which is where I grew up for ninth grade. And the reason that I that I went, it, well, I guess that would seem like there were obvious reasons, but my real reason was they told me that they were going to let me out early so that I could go to extra ballet classes. At the time I went to, it was called the Rock School of the Pennsylvania Ballet. Now they're two totally separate entities. The Rock School is its own thing. Pennsylvania Ballet changed its name to Philadelphia Ballet, probably for some kind of funding reason so less stately than Pennsylvania Ballet but whatever and the rock school was right down the street from the performing arts high school maybe half a block away so then I got to the high school and they said oh actually just kidding you have to wait until you're a junior and then we'll let you out (laughs) and I was not happy about it but okay, (laughs) okay we're here for the year it's September time goes by we'll just see how it goes What was happening was I was getting, I would occasionally get pulled out of my regular classes to come and substitute teach for the ballet program. And I was put with the, with the seniors for their, whatever senior dance, whatever they do. And I was sort of like, well, where's this going? I'm a freshman. I'm already teaching. (laughs) 
like, and I wasn't, I didn't come in as a teacher. It was like just a thing that would come up sometimes. And it's not unheard of. There aren't that many really great dance departments within academic settings because it's such a comprehensive practice. It's hard to mix it with other things. So if it's not the main niche, then it's probably not going to be really good. Or at least that's been the case historically up till now. Maybe somebody can find an exception and that's <laughs> fine. Anyway, so that wasn't working for me. And then I actually found a new teacher. My teacher, she was, her name was Margarita de Sa. She was one of the founding dancers with National Ballet of Cuba. I think, I think maybe I told you about her when oh, we right. first talked. Why don't you share that story quickly though? I think it's really cool. Oh my God. It's so cool. So she was a ballerina in Cuba and she had a twin sister and she danced under Alicia Alonso, who Alonso was the founder of National Ballet of Cuba. She was a big, she was a big star. She was friends with Castro. He was a big supporter of the ballet. That's He's crazy. the reason I know. He's the reason we have National Ballet of Cuba, which they produce some of the best dancers in the world. They have this funny story about Alicia Alonso when she was trying to get Castro to fund her new company. And he said, how much money do you need to start a good ballet company? And she said, $100,000. And he said, I'll give you 200 and it better be a good ballet. So my teacher, Margarita, was one of the dancers under Elisa Alonso. And she had a twin sister who also was a dancer, Ramona. And my teacher met an American man who had been dancing there. She fell in love with him and defected and had this life in the States where she became a really, really respected teacher. And then her twin sister married one of Castro's like main guys, either his right-hand man or his security, head security detail. And she was super into that movement. And she became the director of the school at National Ballet of Cuba. So they had these parallel lives. PBS did a documentary on them. I think it was called Mirror Selves mm. or Mirror Dances, something like that. It's really interesting. And they didn't see each other until I think 40 years later because of the, like the you know, tension. Yeah, yeah right. all of that. She went by Mrs. White. She'd married, her name was Margarita de Sa. And she'd married this American man named John White. So <laughs> classic. So I'd found her and their school was further away from the high school. So I was like, this is ridiculous. Like I have this world where I have to get up at 5 a.m., go to school all day where I'm not, maybe I'm learning something in my academic classes, maybe, but the dance department doesn't make sense. And I'm no, my ballet school is no longer down the street. So Maybe we what should do something else. Yeah. yeah. So we found a school that was an alternative high school. As far as the state was concerned, I had a private school education. It sounds fancy. It wasn't expensive. It was like a homeschooling group, basically, that they had started, you know, sharing resources and costs of things for their alternative education for their kids. And they used to use a woman's house named Tina. So they would say, oh, we're going to do our schooling up at Tina's. So then they changed the name to Up at Tina's and made it a school that was with the state and all oh of that. Incredible. Isn't that hilarious? I love it. It, yeah. it feels very like Appalachian to me. To like Totally. And it was, it was that like that too. It was like in the mountains in Pennsylvania. We had to drive way outside of Philly. And they had classes, you could go in for some subjects, or you could be as remote as possible and 
I was as remote as possible. I would go in maybe twice a year and meet with an advisor. I was allowed to pick my books. I mean, I basically designed my curriculum, but then somebody would need to sign off on it, right? So I would tell them what books I was going to read and I'd have to fulfill my math credits and all that. So I took business math, which for me was super interesting and ended up being useful later. I ended up running my own business. And, you know, I got to work with the parts of my brain that made sense to me. For science, I did anatomy, which, you know, I was a dancer. Oh, no so. kidding. Yeah, that's really cool. It's so like relevant for your work. So relevant and served me for the rest of my life. You know, it really was something that made sense. And I loved it. And I read so many classics. And so, cause I had a lot of freedom. So then I was at my ballet school during the day and we would have loads of downtime in the afternoon. And I really had to self-direct. Like my parents were not together. They both worked, right? So even to use the word homeschooling, it, it fits, right? But it wasn't, I wasn't with my mother or father. Nobody was looking over my shoulder. So I wouldn't say that that was perfect for everybody. But for me and my personality, it worked. And it also, it fanned the flames, I think, of what was already in me. Like, it helped me to develop that self-starting muscle. Whereas the school schedule, it, like, I always felt like it was in the way of who I really wanted to be. With that first year of the homeschooling, I learned that I had seasons. So there were weeks that would go by when I would basically do nothing. I mean, what nothing? You're in ballet six hours a day. You have rehearsals on the weekends. I had these cute little ballet friends that we would go to. We were in Philly. So the Curtis Institute is this super prestigious classical music institution. And they would have free student concerts oh, cool. three nights a week. Yeah. So we would go and see these amazing, talented kids play. It wasn't nothing, but I just might not have been doing anything that had anything to do with my plan for that semester. And then a light would switch on and I would suddenly be getting up at five o'clock in the morning and doing three hours of schoolwork before ballet and then going and then again in the afternoon and then the light would switch off. So it was interesting. It was really like my attention for the that kind of work came in and out like the tides. And it was really great. It was so much less stressful and it allowed me to enjoy reading and studying and learning because I just, I wasn't under the gun all the time on somebody else's schedule. I talked to one guest and I, we reflected that when I'm assigned reading, I don't <laughs> like it. And I, I detest the book. But when I'm I sure. choose reading, it's like, it's a totally different experience. It's like that voluntary agent-based aspect makes the learning a lot better for me. And I think that that's true. I mean, that's true to greater and lesser extents, but it's true to some extent for everyone at all ages. Sometimes I have really young students. Anything that I can do to get them to feel that things are their idea and their creation, they engage on such a deeper level. Even a three, four, five, that's true. And you see it. Why would that be different in the adult mind on a deeper level? Right. Why would that be different? Why would like our ability to direct and focus our learning pursuits, why would that change as we get older? I would feel that it would intensify. If you understand and experience that, we would crave it more. Yeah, well, and it's like, 
it's also more authentic response. Think about before before there was ever any kind of school, right? Let's say we're we're on the farm. You're having one of two responses. You're either doing something because it needs to be done. Oh, well, the sun is shining and the, the winds and the moisture are right. So we're going to plant today. You know, the moon is in its right spot in the sky. We're going to mm. plant today. It needs to be done. So if there isn't this immediate need, then you're responding to your interest or your joy. Oh, well, do I feel like I need a nap now or I'm going to weave something on my loom? It's like the constructs that we've created, right? The education system, all of that. It's, it's not really in us. The way it's set up is not necessarily in us. And I'm not anti all structure. I mean, I come from classical dance, like even within my times when I was so-called doing nothing, discipline will create freedom. We have to keep it in its spot. You know, we have the discipline so we can be free. Oh, not, I love you know. that. Yeah, that's really cool. Discipline will create freedom. And I think when the discipline is chosen, I, I am choosing to be disciplined here. Uh, but you know what? It's almost paradoxical because some discipline, I don't know, there's external reinforcement that can really help that sometimes with the discipline. Well, right. But even that external reinforcement, it's like it has to have something to do with some greater thing that you want. So it's still internal. Like, okay, maybe I want to be in really great shape. That's deeply and truly what I want. But here and now, I don't feel like working out. But I force myself to do it so that I can be free. And how close in or out are we zooming? That's a really great point. Let's go back to your those days, those years where you're having this ebb and flow of intense academics and intense ballet. And you did that all through high school. I did. And it was really awesome. And because of the way that I would just kind of let myself either work or not work, I ended up finishing, I think, in under two years instead of the three that I still technically had left because if I felt like working during the summer, I would just keep going. And something that I tell my students now that ended up being really important or could be important for them, for me, it was maybe less important, was that I still got into great schools. I mean, I ended up fully following the dance path. There were times when I was like, oh, okay, well, maybe I want to take a different path. So what are my options here? Let me apply. And I got into the University of Pennsylvania and the new school and not to brag about me, but it was, I think it's important to know that you can take these alternative paths and the doors don't close for you. Yes. If anything, more of them open. The only doors, in my opinion, that close are fraternizing in high school. And as far as I'm concerned, good riddance, like it just <laughs> oh, yeah. do you develop your mind. Yeah. We can worry about all that later. I think you make a really strong point there in that it took me some time to really lean into how my homeschooled upbringing is actually, it's an advantage. It really sets me apart. When I've talked to employers and, or when I was in school, especially when I was in my undergrad, I was a little more bashful about it. I went to a really good school. I went and got my master's. But as I talked to employers more, I saw that my homeschooling actually made me think differently, made me approach things differently. It made me a lot more self-driven than maybe some of my peers, not all of them, obviously. But just what you're saying is, I didn't graduate from high school at all, but it did not close doors. I think when you have your own objective and where mm -hmm. you know where you're going and you have that drive and that discipline to go all in on whatever you are doing with your life, those doors don't close. It's surprising that these greater institutions don't put as much weight on the traditional path as we think they do. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, they're looking to get a job done. You know, like, 
their bottom line is not to uphold the status quo. I mean, maybe it matters more somewhere else. Like I have British friends who tell me that they get asked six times a day where they went to school. And, you know, so sure, I don't know. I'm not speaking for the whole world. But yeah, institutions, businesses, they're wanting to be successful. What part of you can you bring to that that will make it so they're successful? So if you can show that, yeah, you're you're free. Yeah, doors have opened for me more than closed, I think, from my homeschooling. That was absolutely my experience. Even like at University of Pennsylvania, when I applied, because I was injured, I was like home for a summer. And, and I was like, oh, maybe, you know, I'm going to leave this whole ballet thing behind, you know, having a temper tantrum. I've tried to divorce ballet so many times and like now, now, you know, <laughs> those days are behind us, you know, and I was organized and I, I was competent, right? So I was like, you know what, I could probably have a nice life doing a million other things. So I was living, I had this little apartment for the summer with my best friend <laughs> And I was like, oh, I'm just going to apply to University of Pennsylvania. It was like the only school. And the reason was I could walk there. I liked my apartment. <laughs> I didn't want to move. I'd already, and I'd already been to Ukraine and done these different things. So my decisions were just based on having fun in the moment. Anyway, I'd never taken the SATs. And I went to meet an advisor from the school. And he kind of was like looking down at me. I didn't have my SATs. I was just you know, whatever the way people do, they make their assumptions and their projections. So I wrote a letter to him. I was like, you know, maybe I didn't make this clear in our meeting, but, and I listed the things that I had done. I'd already traveled and had this career and learned another language. And it's like my ballet life and my non-traditional life allowed for those things. So he said, okay, fine. We'll let you into the, because I was, I think I was 21 at the time. So a little bit older than other people applying. And he said, we'll let you into the, to the adult, like continuing education division on a probationary period. So you have to get at least a 2.7. And if you do, then you have access to the whole school and you can do your full education. So I signed up and I got a 4.0 and it was like all the doors just blew open. It was like my work ethic through ballet had been developed and I knew how to organize what was important to me and the way you manage your time. So none of it's about me being amazing, but it was really these muscles that I'd gotten to flex both through dance and having to prioritize what was important to me. What am I willing or not willing to give up? And then through having so much self-direction in my own education. Like I knew how to think about my time and my focus and what was important to me. It was a similar story with the new school. Although of course, by that time, I, like, I had transcripts from Penn and they thought that was fancy and all of that. And I always just thought it was so ridiculous. I'm like, this is what you're measuring me on? These are your metrics? You right. know, pieces of paper? Yeah. And these numbers, meanwhile, that grade that I got over there had nothing to do with the deep journey that I'd gone on with an yeah. art form and right. with my own mind. Right. Yeah. It does not capture the whole person. Yeah. So I really lost a lot of respect for the whole thing through that process. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think what we're highlighting here that's important is, and I experienced this too, the alternative education did not close doors for me. A point of frustration for me in that there's a lot of stigma and there's a lot of, I guess, what's the word, like almost doomsday. Mm -hmm. If you don't do these things in this order, you cannot have a life that you love. And I just have found that to be deeply untrue and misleading for kids too. It, it does not 
portray the human experience very well and what we can do when we advocate for ourselves and work hard. Yeah, and those that those ideas change through different generations. Before the GI Bill, before everyone, before it was so common to go to college and do this very particular route, it was not an assumption that you had that there was one way to become successful. How did the people who really made it in, in the Gilded Age in New York and all of that, it wasn't because they worked for a corporation and went to a certain school. It's like there's never been one way, but the rhetoric around it shifts from generation to generation. And I think it's pretty stale now. There probably was one or two generations where it was really like, if you do this, honey, you will be safe and have a pension. And I think that it's a museum worthy conversation now. No, the times are changing and they're changing not slowly. And what's possible with the internet, the higher education universities were started in medieval times when three people in the world could read. You really did have to go somewhere. (laughs) That's right. Right. (laughs) You had to go to the master and learn from the master. So now, you know, even in our lifetime, more or less, there was a time when not everybody had the access to the internet. I'm on a million tangents. I 10,000% agree with you. It doesn't close any doors. It opens so many and internal doors because you learn about yourself. You're not spoon fed an experience and a path. And I think that's really, really important. Yes. I know I've gone on over and over about this book, but John Taylor Gatto's dumbing us down. He talks mm-hmm. about how self-knowledge is like such a lost art now and people don't know themselves and the schools are not designed in a way where people learn to sit with themselves and understand themselves and who they are. And that really impacts like greater circles in our lives. I want to transition here a little bit and really highlight your work in ballet. I know you're teaching now. Talk about your experiences in teaching and how that's impacted your views on the public system. In our last conversation, you brought up a lot of perspectives that I think listeners will really appreciate. I've been teaching now for almost 20 years because it overlapped with my dancing life, but in a focused way where it was really, this is, this is the main thing for about 15 years now and like different ages and different, also different, different goals within the art form. Like I approach my students as if they're all going to be professional dancers. This is the information I'm here to give you, but they're not necessarily all coming in with that same goal. So point is, I work with different kinds of kids at different ages. It's been interesting for me to see them. And I've had a lot of really, really, really gifted students whose minds are shaped differently. It's like sometimes they'll be so intelligent and then I'll hear that, oh, they're also on some kind of spectrum. I'm not an expert, just this is the information that I have about them. So then I watch them and how they do or don't flourish in the school system. And I'm like, a lot of this just isn't making sense to me. If you have one kid who's incredibly brilliant and also on a spectrum and has struggles with this and the other thing, basically with a system, I'm like, why is the question, how can they fit in to a system? So it's been interesting because I'll see really some of my most brilliant kids who like, they'll come up with these ideas that I never would have thought of. They'll turn questions on their heads. They'll rearrange choreography to fit into the music in this way where I'm like, wow, yeah, okay, you win. We're putting that in. And I see them struggling 
in regular school. And I'm, I just feel so confused. I guess on one hand, it could be a privileged question, right? Like you might not first, not everybody's going to have the personality that they can just self-direct and teach themselves at home, especially when they're little. I didn't do it until I was 14 or 15. And then if that's not the case, then not everybody's going to have a parent that can, that can be with them. So I understand all of that. I'm not even saying that I have a broader answer. I just get confused as to the questions. You know, I see the stress always seems to be, you know, what's wrong? Why aren't they fitting into the system? And I'm like, I, whether or not we find the answer today, that's the wrong question. I love that. The, like we spoke last time, the premise is wrong. You can ask a million yeah. questions, but if your premise is wrong, I don't know if you'll find the best solution. Right. Because if the premise is that this system is golden <laughs> and this should be the direction of our lives and how can we fit into that, if that's what we're operating from, it's like we're never going to find the solution. Yeah. And going back to your points in that I talked to an early, early guest and his thoughts were, look, homeschooling and alternative educational paths could work really well for everyone. Every individual could do really well crafting their own education, but it may not work well for every family because you have a lot of dynamics in the family. And sometimes you can rely on or just anchor on what the public system offers. I have to catch myself sometimes. I'm obviously very like homeschool, alternative education. That's my passion. That's my bias. But I see the value in the public system, especially with family dynamics. It's hard sometimes. You just can't always do it. Oh, for sure. And those dynamics, there's a myriad of situations and emotional psychic structures within the family. How do you make a blanket change for the whole group? I don't know. Yeah. But what I'm really behind is looking at it. <laughs> Let's look at it. And the assumptions need to be shifted if we're going to improve our lives at all. You know, how do we take care of the human spirit? How do we take care of the earth? They end up being the same question. So that's really what I'm, what I feel really, really strongly about. It's a little bit funny. And I also agree with myself that I'm just allergic to regular school, <laughs> but that's just me having sure. feelings, you okay. know, waving my hands around during the day. But <laughs> I totally, I totally agree with you. If you were to just erase the public schools, I'm not saying that that's the answer, right? But if we're looking to a system as if it was invented by the gods, well, the sun rises and we need to deal with the sun. Public school is, or private school for that matter, regular school is not the sun and the moon and the stars. We invented it so we can ask questions about it. Uh, I, I just, I'm getting so worked up in a good way. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I think there's incredible value in challenging those premises. Look at the world around you and challenge it. And I don't know, I just think there's so much that it gives you if you can do that and then live by that as well. I found that learning to lean into those differences and challenging the world around me develops me as a person as well, where I'm able to sit with my own opinions, albeit unpopular opinions. Because what you're talking about is being present to the here and now. Like we set up systems to make our lives more efficient and to build momentum on ideas that we think are good. But then you run the risk of just being mindless in it. So you're talking about, you don't always have to be on a crusade about something, but let's look at it. Is it working here and now in the times that we live in with the resources that are available to us, with the amount of people on the planet? You know, would we have invented the system today 
if it didn't already exist? Would we do it like this? And I think that's an interesting question that you can't always make the changes, but let's look at it. Something that I thought was interesting was during the quarantines, you know, I went online with a lot of my students and that was something interesting because I had to find different ways to keep the material interesting. I just, when it's through Zoom, you can't just I don't know like, how you do that. <laughs> well, you really, you could, you just couldn't do it in the same way. It's like, I can't just harass you about your straight knee through <laughs> Zoom. We have to, <laughs> which, which in person, there's something interesting to those details and that tedium and you like conquer the step for the day and we go on this journey within the class and that's cool. But through Zoom, it just was a different beast. So that's when we started doing the different like dance education stuff. I was like, well, we'll do dance talks. I'll teach you about a dancer and the like the Nureyev example. I can't teach you about Rudolf Nureyev without talking about the Russian Revolution and Imperial Russia and the Cold War and the Iron Curtain, etc. All just so that we could understand why this dancer interpreted the role of Romeo in that way. But what I thought was really interesting during that time, because I spent almost as many hours with them on Zoom, if not more, than I had in person. I really saw some kids did not do well over Zoom. I know that. And some families really struggled, right? So I'm just talking about my relatively narrow experience. Mm -hmm. Was I saw a lot of the kids that struggled in person, like exhausted from the school day and overwhelmed by all the stimuli. I saw a lot of them flourish, just having this kind of calmer atmosphere and once removed and a lot more downtime. I saw that in my older kids. And when I say older, I mean, seven to 15. And then with the littles, it was interesting because I would run these, these classes and in real life, Kids, especially when they're really young, they learn differently, right? So you might have a little one who's spinning in circles in the corner and you think she's not listening, but then three weeks later, she comes and spits out your whole, everything that you did. And then you have another one who's super serious and can't be bothered with imagery and games and wants to just get to the work. And so in the in-person class, you have to, there's a modicum of, well, more than a modicum of compliance that we have to do so that we can do the class <laughs> mm -hmm. and get through the day and learn something. But through Zoom, it was interesting because they were all just in their living rooms and they were just free to be their little weird selves. Like the little one who wanted to turn in circles while she listened and just do her own moves could do it. The serious one could be serious and totally stay with me and help me answer the questions or whatever. So I don't have a thesis statement for that. I just... It went coming from my homeschooling background, et cetera. I just thought it was interesting watching them in real time, being able to be themselves in their individual little squares and how for a certain age group and certain types of minds, it really worked. And I'm like, you know, I don't know. I think we need to have more conversations around, could we have more options? I think that's something that really strikes me about this conversation is what I hear you highlighting is the truly deeply individual aspect of every person and how the system at large doesn't honor and reflect that deeply individual aspect of everyone. And so you're saying, why don't we have more options that are legitimate and recognized and valued? Because look at all these little lives, these little minds and development paths. They're not the same. What if we asked 
should we be treating them the same? Should we putting them all on the same conveyor belt? And so I just think they're really valuable questions. And I like that your experience from ballet is giving you that perspective. Yeah. And it's a little bit funny because actually, let me just add one thing and then I'll come back to that. Mm-hmm. Sure. Is the rates of development. You see some kids who maybe at five years old, you're really ready for the three-year-old content, but it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that they're not smart or that they won't be highly functioning, compassionate, organized, competent members of society. It just means that that's where they are for the moment. And the stress of having to be where you're not, it affects their self-esteem and all of the things that really allow you to be successful in life. It's dangerous to assume that they all need to be at the same spot at the same time. And that works both ways. Sometimes the kids like really mentally ahead, they're ready for more, they're hungry. And so then to hold them back and bore them creates its own, it's problematic. The conveyor belt is problematic. I'm not saying that I have a blanket answer. It really, it is something that we need to sit with, especially if you're developing young minds. It's kind of interesting because ballet in and of itself, part of the nature of the beast is there has to be an element of rigidity, more than one element. It's like just to get good at it. It's so comprehensive and it's a lifestyle like it affects what you eat the way you sleep you know there's you're never off you're never off in or out of the studio so it's like just to get to even a proficient level with the technique of the art form requires so much rigidity and that in in and of itself can be dangerous and I think I mean ballet schools are its own thing dance education needs an upheaval too. Like we need to nurture, we actually need to flex the muscle of being creative and thinking about not assuming that the way things are right now is the way they always have to be. So it was interesting for me having a different kind of schooling because I may not have found that in the way that I really did find it and ended up guiding the rest of my life. Was a, there was a, I guess what I'm saying is there was a huge contradiction with the way we're raised in ballet and it's not to criticize all the dance training. Part of it just has to be that way. If you're not going to go through the discipline, you won't be good and you won't be a professional. And that's fine. That's fine. You can have a nice life somewhere else. But if we're talking about fulfilling your dream, we need to we get need serious to cr- about it. Yeah. Yeah. We got to get serious. Like, sorry, yeah. honey. You know, we got to do it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I really love all your thoughts there. And I feel like I could talk. I don't know a lot about ballets and art form. And so I feel like I would love to learn more, especially the perspective you have on it. I just, I guess what I'm saying is I feel like I'm learning a lot about ballet in a way that is different and refreshing to me. I want listeners to be able to go and learn more about you. I know you're teaching. I know you've got your own work going. Where can I point listeners to so they can find out more about your work? Great. Yeah, you can find everything on my website. It's cynthiadragani.dance. Okay. I actually do work for homeschooling groups and Montessori schools. It's ballet and then related art. So we'll do art and artists and dance. So they'll learn about the different famous artists who have been the, who've worked with the ballet ruse. And those artists include Dali, Picasso, Monet, Goncharova, Box. It just goes on and on and on. And then the obvious ones, Degas. And then impressions of impressionists and because we can't learn deeply about ballet without learning about different things so it's like dance and then related arts studies so those programs i, I think are cool all of that's on cynthia dragoni.dance and the 
homeschooling sites under construction at the moment, but it'll be back right. up in like a day, probably by the time this is edited and up. Yeah, let's do this. I, I will link to CynthiaDragoni.dance. Love Perfect. the URLs, by the way. I'll link to that in the <laughs> show notes page. And it then me up. I don't know how you pulled that off. I'll have to ask you <laughs> after the show. But then once your homeschool page is up, go ahead and send that to me. I just feel like I feel like I connect with you well on your perspective on things and in the connectivity, how connected the world is. When you learn about dance, you learn about cultural revolutions and sure. and economics and like other art forms. And I love that holistic approach. And I feel that from you a lot. Yeah, thank you. It's true. You know, as a young student, I was so obsessed with ballet. <laughs> <laughs> and I did have a chance to, they'll let you, they'll let you pick what you're going to do your paper on, right? It was always dance related, regardless of the class. So that dance lens, I got to really go deeper into it with the alternative education. And yeah, and it changed my life and made it so I could, I wasn't afraid to start a business. I didn't come from a whole lot of like background family security, right? The different kind of schooling plus dance allowed me to understand who I was and what I could do and what it meant to fail, what it meant to make a decision and take a risk. And it, you know, it made it so I could have a nice life. So I'm a fan. <laughs> I'm a fan too. I, I feel like everything <laughs> you're describing is like true living. Those things you described are what it means to be alive, to fail, right. to decide, to choose, to move forward. That's living. Yeah. 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 I really so like it. So. It's fun. Being alive is fun. Yeah. Yeah. No, I really enjoy it personally. So. Me too. All right, Cynthia. Appreciate your time so much. I hope you have a really great Tuesday and let's stay in touch. I want to link to your homeschool page once it's up. Okay. Awesome, Mike. Thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. Hey, listeners, if you enjoy the homeschool dropout, the best way to support the show and increase its value to you and other homeschoolers is to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So head there now and we'll see you next week.